So it's uh, been an interesting week. I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm here with you today. I'm 54 years old, and I finally got my wisdom teeth out. <laughs> the problem is, when they took the one out, it created a hole into my sinus. So now when I drink, stuff comes out my nose. Yeah, it's pretty gross. So I didn't bring my didn't bring my drink up here today because I didn't want to get all over my notes. So uh, I could drink through my nose. Yes, I can do a lot of things. There's certain things you don't want to eat at this point, you know, because they, you're eating it for like 48 hours. So <laughs> sorry, it's just the way. It's not fun, but. Uh, it's done. It, it, it. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. It's salt water. Uh, we left. We left. Uh, had a, a really big passage of scripture last Sunday. It was John chapter fifteen, verse thirteen. He's like, "No greater love has any man." than those that would lay down their life for their friends. Those who would lay down their life for their friends. Today is my friend Keith Tyner's birthday. And uh, he is dropping off his fourth child to college today. And uh, him and Connie will be making their their way back and dropping Casey off at Hardin or Murray, Murray, Kentucky. So... Yeah. Uh, but when I, I sit there and think about, it's not just Keith. I have a lot of friends in here. Uh, you think about that verse, would you give up your life for people in this room? You know, I think you never know until you're in the situation, but um, I would think that I would. And I think that you would as well. I I think that's what being the, the family is for is, is that ultimate sacrifice. And this is exactly what Jesus has done. He has, here's what you need to know, is when Jesus gave up his life, it says in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so so who did Jesus die for? He died for the world, right? For all. For all to be saved. He died for everybody. Jesus gave his life for everybody. And if Jesus is sitting here saying, this is the greatest love to die for a friend, he's calling the world his friend. Think about that for a second. Even the non-believers, Jesus died for. That doesn't mean that they have salvation because obviously they have to believe that Jesus is the Savior. But he did die for the whole world. He did die for the whole world and he counts everyone as his friend, which is just crazy to think about. That Jesus considers me his friend and he's my friend. That's a good thing. He says in verse 14, 
You are my friends if you do what I command you. <laughs> and again, we broke this down just a little bit. Again, that sounds like this is a conditional statement. I'll be your friend if you do what I tell you to do. Well, that's not the way it reads. That's not the way it was spoken. He's like, if you are my friends, he's like, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And in other words, you're going to love me so much that it's going to be easy for you to obey what I tell you. And we went to 1 John chapter 3 and we saw that Jesus said, here's, here's the commands. One, that you believe in my name, Jesus Christ. You believe that I am the Savior. And two, that you love others. That's it. That's all we have to do. And we said, just like we're going to say right here, uh, you can't do that. You've already proven that you can't love everyone. I mean, not everybody in this room is lovable. <laughs> Let's just say it. But you have the ability to love everybody in here. Why is that? Not because you're doing it in your own strength, but you're living your life by the source of another who will do it through you. That's the good news. So even when your spouse, your sibling, your coworker, your boss does something that irritates you, annoys you, you're still capable of loving them, maybe not in your own strength, but in the one who lives through you. The Father lives through the Son, the Son lives through you, which is a crazy thing to think about. You know, most believers believe that the greatest aspect of being a believer in Jesus Christ is salvation. Right? That you come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and that you receive salvation and you're going to get to live with Him in eternity. That's To, to, to them, that's the greatest thing. To me, there's a greater aspect than that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's obviously pretty hard to, to top salvation. But the greater aspect is, what if you could walk this earth in our, our own earth suits, but your source of energy, your abilities, your creativity, your, your thinking your love, your mercy, your grace all came from another source aside from your own. To me, that's even greater. That I can sit here and walk this earth and I can have all those abilities and it's not dependent upon me doing it. It's, I, I saw the movie this week. And I just think this was like the best line in the movie. I saw Christopher Robin. It's a great flick. Winnie the Pooh says some great things. And in this, he says, I don't know if it was Winnie the Pooh or Christopher Robin, but said, do nothing often leads to the very best something. And as I've come to understand, do nothing do nothing in my own strength. But if I do nothing in my own strength, the Lord's going to do it through me and some amazing things are going to happen. I've come to learn that 
and I would say the majority of the church, the majority of the believers in Jesus Christ, never grasp that fact that they can have rest in Christ. Because they're always trying to attain their righteousness, which they already have. We spin our wills trying to attain this righteousness. This is the only way to live out Jesus' commands, is allowing him to live through you. I mean, being born is great, right? But we have a life to live. Salvation is great, but now we have this life to live in Christ And I believe that's truly what he desires for us. He says that I came that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest, that you might have it abundantly. Well, how do you do that in a fallen world? You only do that through Christ and in Christ. But the majority of the church is still stuck on the birthday. In verse 15, he says, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. Uh, I'll say this real quick. You, we, we get this, I've talked about this with the high school students. We get this concept of what, uh, servants and slaves are kind of messed up because of our society growing up in America and, and slavery and everything else. We have this concept. When Jesus is talking about being a servant, he's really, he's really talking about being a bond servant. A servant is someone who, who provides their ability and resources to an owner, a master, and they work for them, and they're paid a certain amount. And then after a period of time, they're like free to go do whatever, whatever they want. You may call that a contract. But they say, hey, I love my master so much, I want to stay with him and be his servant. That's the bond servant. So they form this bond between the master and the servant. And what, that's just a little explanation here, but Jesus, Jesus clearly says right here, I don't even call you servants anymore because I want you to know what's going on. I'm like giving you insight. I want to give you, I want to give you revelation of what really has occurred. Literally, Jesus has spent three years with these young men and he's told parables he's told these stories that were not seen by the pharisees but in private jesus says hey i want you guys to understand this a master would not do that with a servant jesus says you're my friends he says i've called you friends because i have made known to you everything that i have heard from my father To me, this is the beauty of knowing, here it it comes, this is the beauty of knowing your identity in Christ. Jesus says, I want you to know that I love you as a child, a child of God. And because of what I'm about to do to go on the cross, it's going to allow you to become holy, it's going to allow you to be redeemed, it's going to allow you to be forgiven. It's going to allow you to be perfect. Perfect. I'm going to make you perfect. Jesus says, I want you to know this. If you can, 
know exactly what the Father thinks about you, it causes you to walk different. It causes you to breathe different. It causes you to do things different. It really does. And so he says, I want you to know. I want you to know who you are. And then verse 16, here's the catchy passage of scripture. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. First of all, who's Jesus talking to when he says this? He's talking to his disciples. He's he's literally left the upper room with his disciples. He's walking to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's having this discourse with his disciples. And he's saying, I want you to know this. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Now, you get into controversy here because everybody wants to say, well, this is like predestination. That Jesus chose them for salvation. Well, let's look at what actually has occurred here. I want to take you back to a couple of other verses. In John chapter 6, verse 70, it says, Jesus replied to them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve, yet one of you is the devil? 71 says, He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. Jesus says, I chose you, the twelve, but one of you is the devil. Does that mean that all twelve have salvation? No. It's basically saying, Judas, you don't have salvation, but I still chose you. So he's not saying that he chose them for salvation. He says, I chose you to be my disciples. That's what I chose you for. So if you take that verse and you construe it to say he's talking about salvation, that he chose us based upon eternity past, then you're really talking out of context. You'd look at Mark, and here's the beautiful thing. Mark chapter 3, verse 14. It says, He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles. And here it is. Here's the kicker part of the verse. To be with him. To send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. We were sitting uh, at a little get together last night and one of the ladies says, do you think if I taught a Roman study that women would be interested in that? And I looked at myself and I'm like, why don't you ask one of the women? (laughs) And immediately Scott Blewett spoke up. Not, not in that sense, Scott. (laughs) You know, it's true. He did, right? But he's like, well, I know this lady, this lady, this lady, and this lady would all be interested. Like Scott knew the pulse of the crowd in the, in that very room right there. He knew, he knew. And I would imagine for the person that asked, you know, would they be interested? There's kind of an intimidation that you go around the room and go, well, uh, am I capable of doing this? Here, here's what you need to know to be a discipler. The only thing that you need to be to be a discipler is to be a little bit more mature than the disciple. That's it. You don't have to know the word better because you, you're going to study the word together. In fact, I, this, this is what I do. 
I disciple. Uh, just last week, I flew a friend up here from Oklahoma who was going through a hard time. Made some bad choices. Was reeling from the consequences of those choices. And so I'm like, just come hang out with me. So when he came up here and hung out with me, guess what we did? We played top golf. We ate. We laughed. We cried. We talked. He watched me interact with my wife. He watched me interact with my son. He watched me interact with my friends. He came here and experienced this ministry right here. And guess what? I didn't crack the Bible open one time. Not one time. That wasn't what he needed. He just needed somebody to show him the practicalities of life. This is what life looks like in this context of knowing who you are in Christ. It's a big deal. If I, if I could, <laughs> if I had another life here on earth, I'd, I think I'd like to be a seminary president. And Matt's like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> because I would revamp the whole thing, literally. I would hire men that love Jesus, and I'd say, here's your 12 guys, hang out with them for three or four years. Teach them everything you know. Teach them how to do woodwork, teach them how to do tile, teach them how to like treat their families, tell them, treat them how to like run a business, and just hang out with them for four years. To me, that would be seminary. Not go sitting in a classroom learning Greek and Hebrew, and I, I get it, I get it. But the practicalities of life in the context of knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. This is what Jesus said. I want you, I choose you 12 to just be with me. Just come hang out with me. You get to know me. We'll do some crazy stuff. We'll have campfires. We'll do stupid stuff. But if you know me, you're going to know my father. And the things that you see me do, my father did that. Through me. And I think that seminary could be the same way here on earth right now. That men and women in this room could allow the Lord to do some crazy things through them. And it wouldn't be them and their own strength doing it. It would be the Father through the Son in you doing it. And people would go, whoa. It'd be worth any A just to watch that life. Just teach practicality. Jesus chose the twelve to be with him, not for salvation. Even though eleven of them were. He says, I appointed you to go and to produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. Wait a second, we went back to John chapter 15 and he says, remain in me and I in you. Remember that whole thing? 
I'm the vine, you're the branches. Who produces fruit? Who produces fruit? The gardener produces fruit, which is the father. Through the vine, through the branch. Who produces fruit? Not you. The father does it through you. Watch this. And he says, and that your fruit should remain. What fruit remains? We said this last week. If you go to 1 Corinthians and the whole judgment seat, the fruit that remains is this, those things done in the spirit. Anything done in your flesh, that's burnt up. So I've chose you 12 to come here and produce fruit through the Father, through me, through the spirit in you. And it is going to last forever because the Spirit did it rather than you. That's what he just said. You 12. And look, here we are in 2018 talking about what these disciples did. Did they do the fruit through the Spirit? Absolutely they did. He says, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. We talked about this a few verses earlier. If you know the Father's name, if you know the Father, you're going to know exactly what to ask for when you pray. And the things that you pray for and the things that you ask for are going to be in alignment with the will of the Father. Not like your personal want-to list, personal need list. Your list is going to line up with the Father's list because you know him. And he says, this is what I command you love one another it's that it's that agape love agape love is not based upon a feeling (laughs) if it was based upon a a feeling I wouldn't love too many people but it's based upon a choice I, I chose my wife that's obvious I chose my wife and I choose to love her I don't know if I really got to choose my kids. Had kids. But guess what? It's even a choice to love my kids. To love Corey and to love Chloe. This is the love that he's talking about, is love one another. This is a choice that you get to freely make, is to love one another. And so we do that unconditionally. No matter what kind of goobers they are or what kind of goobers you are or no matter what kind of goobers I am, I choose to hang out with you and love you. And hopefully you do the same thing with me. And then Jesus gets real with them at this point. Now let me tell you how this is really going to fall out for you guys. Verse 18 he says, If the world hates you, well, understand that it hated me before it hated you. They hated me first, he said. It's that whole, I did it first game. (laughs) He's like, they're going to, you're going to be lovey and warm and fuzzy and just, you're going to choose to agape love everybody and the world's just going to hate you. Because they've already done that to me. He came here and he experienced it so that he could sympathize with his disciples and actually sympathize with you to know that in this world 
you will be hated because of your love for Jesus. It's right there. He says, just get ready for it. I don't think he said it's going to be 50%, but that's pretty much what it is, right? The half and half. Jesus wanted to remind the disciples that the world and its system is going to hate them. He said, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. They once were of the world, right? Because we were all born with sinful nature. Everybody in here was born of a sinful nature and we were of the world and everybody was cool with that. But once we came to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he took our old heart out, our sinful nature out, replaced it with a new heart, and it allowed us to love people, and now we're in opposition to the world. It says, however, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Uh, I, I'll try to get real with you here real quick. You realize that the evil one <clears throat> is probably going to use believers in Jesus Christ to detour the gospel of Jesus. We're in a spiritual battle, and I would expect the evil one to use believers against believers. I would expect the evil one to use my friends against me. I would expect the evil one to use my family against me. I would expect the evil one to do whatever he can to destroy me. Yeah, so he'll use your family. He'll use your friends. And here's what I know. Because this gospel message that we're trying to break out here every week, it's really been... Uh, detoured from what we're reading here. I don't consider myself uh, to be better than other people. I don't consider myself to have more insight than other people. I just have a different perspective about this gospel, this good news, and it makes sense to me. So this is what I teach. But let me say this. It's hard... <laughs> It's really hard to disassociate yourself from the conglomerate definition of Christianity. Like, Christianity now, especially like in politics and things like that, just has just this negative connotation to it. And I sit here and walk this earth and go, how can I get my name unattached to that word of Christianity? I, I'm, a, I'm a believer. I love, you know I love Jesus. You know I'm a Christian. But how do I get away from how this whole thing has become distorted? It's hard to even disassociate yourself from the systems that have been put in place even by the majority of the churches. Like, you, you, you come into a bar, your pastor's wearing shorts and flip-flops. We don't take an offering. We don't have an invitation. We're not saying prayers of salvation here. We're not counting people. We're not doing a lot of things. Uh, 
how do I, and this is hard for me because this is what I grew up doing. This is what I was trained to do. How do you, how do you not do church like you grew up? How do you get outside of this Sunday morning program? I'm not trying to disrupt things. I'm not trying to be better. I'm just like, I just want to be with him. And I want to teach people about him. That's really all I want to do. All the other stuff is unnecessary. How do you strip all this away? How do you strip membership away, committees away? How do you get all this away and just let it be this right here? It's not, it's not really hard to see that the evil one doesn't want believers or the church to be successful. Right? I mean, don't you think he's okay with a mediocre church? Don't you think he's okay with mediocre believers that nobody in this world wants anything about? Right? I mean, that, that makes sense to me. He's okay with that. He's okay with people playing church. So, mediocre Christianity and mediocre church is effective in causing the world to hate the ones who have been commanded to love and even given the ability to love. It makes it difficult. I'm just being real with you. Keith and Charlie and I sat there and over breakfast this week talked about it. How, how do you get out of these systems? How do you get out of religion? How do you do this? You just quit meeting on Sundays? Uh, don't go there. Do you, what, it, what is it? Can you just live your life by the Spirit and have no idea what it looks like? No goals, no plans, just every day be with Him? Process that this week. How do you just be with him? You've been taught a lot. You've been packed. You've packed a lot of bags. I've packed a lot of bags. Still trying to unpack them. He says, verse 20, Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. I mean, it, it often sounds, and I get, I get this, it often sounds like I'm bitter about the whole institutional church and the system that's been established by Christians. Trust me, I'm not. I grew up in it. And I understand it, and I get it. I'm sympathetic to it. I believe that God works through it. Still. I understand spiritual warfare, and what Jesus is sitting here reminding his disciples about concerning being in the world. So, again, I'm constantly questioning what I'm doing personally 
and as a ministry? Am I doing things because it's what I know how to do or because that's what the Spirit is calling me to do? You have wrestled with this question for the last couple of weeks. As we've sat here and talked about, don't live by the flesh, live by the Spirit. The things of the flesh are going to burn up. The things of the Spirit are going to remain. And you're sitting there like going, how do I know what's of the flesh and how do I know what's of the Spirit? I know you've been wrestling with that because you've been asking me. How do you know? You know what my answer is going to be? I said it last week. Know him. Know him. You'll figure it out. How do you shed that Sunday morning system? The monotony. Doing the same thing over and over. The apathy. How do you get rid of the apathy? How do you, how do you get rid of the misconstrued ideas of what Christ called us to do? How do you... How do you get there? He's sitting there saying to his disciples, "This is how it's going to be, you guys. They're going to. Yeah, I, I called you. I've given you the power to do it, and they're going to hate you, and they're going to want you to be in the world, and they're going to like try to get you to move back into their system. Do I avoid systems? Do I comply? The struggle is real. The struggle is <laughs> is real. But so is the fact that no matter my choices the world's still going to hate me. No matter what I choose to do here, out there, whatever, I know what he says, the world's going to hate me. He's one of those Jesus lovers. Man, that sounds like doom and gloom. I get it, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry to like, this. I'm just reading the word. But it's really not. It's not doom and gloom. It's the result of doing what Jesus gives us the ability to do, and that's to love one another. Don't forget that. That's just the result. People are going to hate me, but Jesus has given me the ability to love one another. Don't forget that. That's the upside. And so we will continue to do that. We will continue to walk by his spirit. We will continue to do what he's called us to do. Just know that we're stuck in this fallen world. But it's a good thing we have his strength. He says in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, what would those be? Those would be the messianic miracles. No one else has done these miracles, but I did them. They would not have sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. You remember those messianic miracles that he did. What were they? First of all, he healed a Jewish leper, which is in uh, Matthew chapter 8. Secondly, he healed a blind man that was born uh, blind in John chapter 9. And then the third one he did was that he cast a demon out of a mute. No one had ever done those three miracles before. Jesus came and did it, and he's like... Now they've seen this. Now that they can clearly see that I am the Messiah, that I'm the Savior, because they've said all along, anybody that can do those three miracles right there has to be the Messiah. Well, I've shown it to their face, yet they still refuse to believe that I'm the Messiah. He shined a light on their blindness. In verse 25, he says, But this happens so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. 
they hated me for no reason. That's David saying that in Psalm chapter 69, verse 4. He says, when the counselor, the helper comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, I've chosen you as apostles. And I ask you to be with me. You go to Acts chapter 1 verse 21, it says this, Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time, the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. Jesus like, you have been with me from that very first day, even to the day that I die. You are my apostles. And now I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you a helper, a counselor, and this helper counselor is going to do amazing things through them. The Father, through the Son, through the Holy Spirit, in them, the apostles. Now let me get to just a couple of verses here in 16. He says, I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. I'm trying to encourage you guys here. You're going to be hammered. Just know I'm trying to help you. He says, they will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who, who kills you will think he is offering service to God. They're going to justify their hate towards you. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I have told you these things so that when your time comes, you will remember. I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. When in, in the beginning, when they were first starting to follow, they didn't have a clue what they were talking about. And Jesus like slowly revealed things to them, just like he does us. He slowly reveals things to us, right? You wish you could like download like like Paul did on the road to Damascus. He just downloaded like three and a half years of ministry right there. I wish I could get that. But I'm slow, it's slowly being revealed to it because that's all I can handle. That's what he was saying to his apostles. Like, I, I had to give it to you easy. He says, but now I'm going away to him who sent me, and not one of you asked me, where are you going? Yet because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. In other words, you're missing the big picture. There's a bigger picture out here, and all you're focused on is me leaving you. The sadness, the grief. He says, nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. In other words, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise again. I'm going to sit with God. I'm going to send this helper. This helper is going to live in you 11 and all the believers, and there's going to be many, and the word will go forth. If it's just me, and the Spirit doesn't get to come, that's one. But now there's going to be many, even in 2018, that have the Spirit in me that can like profess and just live their life and show that God is real, that Jesus is real, that the Spirit is real. It all happened in Acts 2. Last verses. I get this. He, you want to know what the Spirit's responsibility is. This is the only place that you're going to find it in Scripture. Right here. 
Everybody's like, well, what's the responsibility of the Spirit? You always have attached one word to the Holy Spirit. What is that word? Convict. The Holy Spirit comes to convict. Watch this. When He comes, this is the only place, right here, when He comes, He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit, my helper is going to come, He's going to convict sin, righteousness, and judgment. You got to get this. He says about sin. Let me break, Jesus says, let me break this down for you. About sin, because they do not believe in me. Who doesn't believe in Jesus? Non-believers. Yeah. We always consider the secular world. They don't believe in Jesus. So he says, I come to the non-believers and convict them of what? Their sin of unbelief. I come, I come to convict them. So like all the non-believers are being convicted by the Holy Spirit right now. Why do you think they hate us? Because they're being convicted of their sin, of unbelief. Makes sense. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of its sin of unbelief. Now watch this. He says about righteousness. Because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. Let me read 11. Come back to that one. And about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's talking about the future. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Jesus, or Paul says that Satan is the ruler of this world. So he's talking about uh, because the ruler of this world has been judged. You can turn that volume down on that. It'll ring. Uh, they got it. So it says they're going to be judged. The ruler of this world is going to be judged in the end. And in the end, we get, guess what? Guess what? He is judged and he loses. Now let me go back to the righteousness thing. Because this is like the big deal. We're closing out on this right here. If the Holy Spirit comes and he convicts the world of its sin, of unbelief, and he convicts on judgment, the ruler of the world, which is the evil one, he loses. But it says he comes to convict the righteous. Who's the righteous? Believers. Hello, that's you. That's you. He comes to convict the non-believers of their sin of unbelief. He comes to convict the believers of their righteousness. Wait, I thought he came here to convict me. I thought when I do something bad, that's the Holy Spirit convicting me. How can it be the Holy Spirit convicting me if Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Hmm. Hmm. The Holy Spirit comes to convict you of your righteousness. So I make a bad choice. I sin. I still sin. I still make bad choices. I walk in the flesh occasionally. It's becoming less and less as I grow. But as I walk in the flesh, make a sin choice, bad choice, guess what? The Holy Spirit inside of me convicts me of what? My righteousness. Rusty, I made you holy. I've forgiven you. I've made you perfect. My sacrifice made you perfect. I hear that. I hear that. Oh, why did I just do what I did? I can let shame and guilt come in at that point. 
and that's all a tactic of the evil one. Or I can say, Lord, I need you to do this in my life. Will you do this for me? I believe that I am righteous. I believe that I'm holy. I believe that I'm forgiven. I believe everything that the scripture says about me because you wanted me to know the truth. And because of that, that's what I want to walk in. I need you to help me walk in that truth. And I walk on. That's it. That's how you deal with sin. Sounds easy, right? (laughs) That's it. I came, the Spirit came to convict the world of its sin of unbelief. Came to convict you, the believers, that you are righteous and holy. It says it right there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we, we might become the righteousness of God. You are the righteousness of God. And he's constantly reminding you, you're righteous, you're holy. I did this. When you all were sinners, I made you forgiven. Walk in that, live in that. It's a great ride. And if you can't figure it out, Stop doing things. I'll do it for you. God, if we can just get this, I pray that uh, you continue to convict us of our righteousness till that when we do blow it, we know it doesn't feel right and we just want to walk in your love. We want to walk in your obedience. We want to walk in your spirit. You're the only one that's going to do that in our lives. So I trust you with your word that what you said to your disciples is true for us here today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.